Good morning again. <clears throat> I ask that you, as we continue working our way through the book of Romans, uh, turn to chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 8. Now, as you're turning there, I'd just like to say that those of us who have worked in sales know that one of the most important aspects of successful selling is adequately answering objections. And those who are really good at it know the best time to answer reoccurring objections is before they're even raised. And, and how, you, uh, do, how do you do that? Typically, it's by having prior experience experiential exposure to those objections, either personally or through the experience of those who came before you. Here, I think, reminded particularly of the man who was so happy when he took home a tricycle. I mean, he was riding that tricycle all over until his wife said to him, why did you buy a three-wheeled car? <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> In chapter 2, Paul spent a significant time, amount of time dismantling a central notion held by the Jews. They believed that they were saved by virtue of their ethnic origin, that God had chosen them as his people here on earth, and that earthly status, that their earthly status extended to their eternal state or state as well. They believed that circumcision was a sure sign of that state, and those were uh, the outsiders, non-Jews, those who were uncircumcised were outside the bonds of God's mercy and were indeed most pitiable to behold. In many corners, they became a people who exuded a religious pride that hindered them from accomplishing the very purposes for which they were brought into existence. They completely missed the fact that in God's economy, salvation has always been through faith, had always been through faith. That before Abraham, for instance, received the sign of the covenant, circumcision, in chapter 17 of the book of Genesis, we find him in chapter 15 being commended as being righteous because he believed God. And so, as one preacher put it, Paul set out in chapter 2 to correct the record, to reform minds, and in doing so, his goal was not to crush the Jews, but to crush their pride and anything else that they might have been exalting or looking to for their redemption. In the same vein, we have the, the people of God today who are called to, to look into their own, our own hearts, leaning, for instance, if we are, on the notion that of, of our pedigree, born in a Christian home, our works, teacher of Sunday school, frequent attender of church, a contributor to God's work and causes were what we were looking to as our commendation badges of merit before God. All of us were reminded that could never be the case. Our salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone. Both Paul and Pastor Carl did such a great job then of telling us that our association with God's covenant community and the works we perform will never, ever earn us a ticket to heaven. They, in fact, did such a great job selling us that point that from now, some of us, we have 
question, just like the Jews in Paul's days, we have questions that we might either need to hear answered or would like to hear how to answer when others ask those same questions. And so as we come to the beginning of chapter 3, what we'll find is that some of the Jews started coming up with their own assertions based on the theological truths that Paul communicated in chapter 2. This was the case, but it could also be reasoned in some instances that Paul himself, based on his experience as a gifted seller or conveyor of God's truth, anticipated some of the objections that would be raised. And so as we look at our passage, we'll see that there are eight questions distilled into four objections stemming from what was stated by Paul in chapter 2. These are objections that are grounded in human reasoning, which should not surprise us since the scriptures themselves tell us that the natural person will not comprehend the things of God, neither can they, because they're spiritually discerned. And so with these words in mind, let us now read our text together. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. This is God's holy and inerrant word, so give careful attention to it. Then what advantage has the Jew? What is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means let God be true and everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Again, Father, we ask that you would bless the hearing, the preaching of your word even now. Illuminate our hearts and our minds so that we could hear that which you would communicate to us. Grow us through this into the image of our Lord and Savior. Magnify him even now before our minds. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I'm going to comment on this text, addressing the objections we see here under three overarching headings. The gift of knowing God's word, the integrity of God's word, and the reliability of God as judge. So first, the gift of knowing God's word. In verse 1, Paul, sounding the first objection, writes, Then what advantage has the Jew? What is the value of circumcision? Here, Paul's accusers, through the use of this objection, were charging him with teaching that the Lord's calling of Israel to his own as a special people was meaningless. Paul, we could hear them saying, if, if being a Jew does not save you, if, if circumcision isn't the mark of, of those who were once and for all saved, then why bother getting circumcised? Why identify as a person who belongs to God? One who has and uses his word as a lamp to his feet and a guide to his path. Dean, you asked, or you say, last week I heard that 
growing up in a Christian home, being baptized, going to church on a regular basis, teaching Sunday school, and even giving sacrificially does not save or contribute to my salvation. So what good are those things? Why am I not home at the Fish Creek or something else? Well, Paul in verse 2 answers to his Jewish objectors, much in every way. What benefit? Much in every way. That is to say, multiply good to the penultimate degree and you might arrive at just how good it is. In every way, comprehensibly. Why? Paul begins by saying, to begin with. It's the Greek word which is typically translated as first or firstly. The fact is the Jews benefited greatly in all sorts of ways. Here Paul begins and ends with the word, word, the benefit of the word. But when we get to chapter 9, we'll see that Paul outlines quite a few more benefits that the Jews had received from being in relations with God. Commenting on some of the others, which again we'll eventually get to, James Boyce wrote, among them is their adoption as sons. In Exodus 4, God, when he sent Moses to Pharaoh, he said, Israel is my son. There's the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. There's are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praise, voice writes. Think about that. The God who created all things took them in as his own, not because of anything they had done, but through the counsel of his own will for his good pleasure and purposes, chief among them being the revelation, the revealing, the eventual revealing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Jews were given that benefit. They were made something, though they were nothing. I could go on and on commenting on the benefits that Boyce outlined, but for our text, our text limits our conversation to one thing, to a primary thing, the oracles of God. You see that in verse 2. Now the word oracle comes from the word which we know as logos, but it is materially different as it just, just doesn't mean the word of God. But it also here means the declarations of God. When you read the first five books of the Bible, you quickly realize that God didn't speak to Moses in dreams, that he didn't show up to him and speak to him some far away. But the Bible tells us that he spoke to him face to face. He didn't just inspire him to write exactly what he wanted him to, but he met with him face to face. In Exodus 19, the people of God heard God and cried out to Moses, let him speak to you, Moses, lest we die. And so God spoke to them, not through writings, not through a dream at night, but declaratively, first directly to them, then specifically through his mediator, Moses. They were guarded, guided, and protected by the creator of the universe himself. Every benefit available to man was available to them. The greatest among them being, again, the special revelation they had. And when God went down the road of putting together the rest of the Old Testament, when we hear the word of God in 2 Timothy 3.16, for example, it's talking about the Old Testament. And when God did that, 
Every single author was what? Jewish. They had the benefit of putting into pen the very words of God. The relationship that they had was second to none. Think about that the God of the universe himself was their God. Their circumcision did not save them. But it identifiably caused them to be recipients of the benefits that were being poured out among them by the God who made them and and was now calling them his own. They were the ones who were being taught, albeit in types and shadows of the, the need to be saved. They were the ones who were being pushed to recognize that there was a need for something greater than what they had, the blood of goats and rams. And you know what? Even those among them, even those among them who did not exercise true saving faith, benefited from the relationships they had with God. They were called to be God's herald to a lost and dying world and possession of what they had. The God of the universe himself is what they had. And the ethical mooring that came with knowing him it benefited everyone, both directly and indirectly. Common grace. A few weeks ago, Dorothy and I took a trip to Washington, D.C. During that trip, we visited the Jefferson Memorial. Now, I don't know if you noticed, but Thomas Jefferson, one of the founding fathers, was not a Christian. But least, listen to what is written in the Jefferson Memorial that I looked at when we went there. Jefferson writes this. God who gave us life, this is a non-Christian, gave us liberty. God who gave us life gave us liberty. Can the liberties of a nation be secure when we have removed a conviction that these liberties are the gift of God? Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just. We might not be a Christian nation, But this nation was built on the ethic of God's word, you see. And all throughout Washington, D.C., you can see evidence of that very fact. David Barton, a Christian historian, said that two books, Jefferson was the superintendent of Washington, D.C., education at one point. Two books he required, a math book and a Bible. And so you see society looked a lot different than it does now because we were grounded on a Christian ethic. Today we can't even tell the difference between what is a man and what is a woman. So you see this nation, even those who did not call Christ Lord, benefited tremendously from those who were called justified and were being sanctified those who avail themselves of the means of grace that God provided, his, his revelatory word, prayer, the sacraments, not forsaking the assembling of themselves, but gathering, fellowshipping all the more as they saw the day of our Lord Christ approaching. We, like the Jews, lack no good things when we bring it to a personal level when we're in Christ. But far more to be embraced than all the good things on earth is the intimate knowledge of Christ we have. And that is revealed to us in his word. Our union with him. 
are possession of his spirit who is working in and through us until this day. All these things are revealed to us in his word. Reading the word might not save us, but oh, is it a great benefit to us in revealing to us who our Savior is and who our Savior, what he's all about, what his purposes are. What a benefit it is to us that are called his. What a benefit it is to know that the God who created the universe has given us his spirit in this age. And now we can understand the word of God. Listen, again, when we went to Washington, D.C., we visited the Bible, the Bible Museum. And we saw where this, the floor where they had the different translations. And do you know that in some places... There's only a part of one book of the Bible available to some people in their own language. Yet folks like us have Bibles in every room in our house. We have the word of God specially given to us. The benefit of having the word of God. Now let's move on and look at our next objection. It's found in verse 3 and we're going to look at it under the next heading the integrity of Paul's word. Paul writes, what if some weren't faithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? So first they charged Paul with teaching that their relationship with God was meaningless. Now they're charging him with doing away with God's promises to Israel. Let me cut right to the chase here. These Jews had a bad case of see what I want itis. It's a malady that many of us in this day and age also have. Universalists are famous for this. These Jews managed to see all the verses in scripture that spoke of God's promises that were positive and of a benefit to them, but they conveniently missed the ones which were often right in the same passage, which call for personal repentance and a personal faith evidenced by a heart bent on obedience. Isaiah 55 verses 6 through 7 is a good example of such an invitation to a faith evidence by obedience. It reads, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon these men that Paul is either anticipating dealing with or is dealing with didn't need to do anything more. They had no need to do anything more than to read the very word of God that was entrusted to them to know that what they were saying was under the earth, sensuous and ungodly. If they had read the word, they would have found that in 1 Kings, for instance, uh, 1 Kings 19, Elijah questioned whether or not he was the only one living by faith in God. For the rest of them were following Baal and Asherahs and other stuff. They had departed. God had to comfort him by telling him, uh-uh, there's 7,000 more out there. There's always been a remnant, but there's always been those who have been walking away from God, even while in covenant with God, that were not saved. You see, there's always been that remnant, again. But God is sovereign and his election and every single person that he promised to save will be saved. This issue in dealing with those who were posting uh, this must have been on the forefront of Paul's mind. 
This objection must have been on the forefront of Paul's mind, so much so that he revisits it in chapter 9, once again writing, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Again, they should have been able to see this. That Ishmael was circumcised, had the sign of the covenant. That Esau was circumcised, had the sign of the covenant. But neither one had saving faith. And so they should have understood that. So folks, the point you should be getting here concerning this particular one is God is absolutely sovereign. And all his promises will come true. You can bank on that fact. No matter what anyone thinks or says, that's why Paul, in answering the objection, bellows, by no means. It's in the emphatic, no way, whatsoever, impossible. No man's faithlessness can nullify the promises of God. And if the entire world says or thinks differently, let every last one of them be a liar, and God who, Titus 2, 1, 2 tells us, never lies, be true. Paul in verse 4 and reinforces this by quoting an excerpt of King David's confession because of what he did with Bathsheba. This, this confession is found in Psalm 51. He says that you, this is the quote, that you, that is God, may be justified in your words and prevailed when you are judged. Pastor John MacArthur commenting on this quote writes, Because God is perfect and is himself the measure of goodness and truth, his word is its own verification and his judgment its own justification. It is utter folly to to suppose that the Lord of heaven and earth might not prevail against the sinful perverted judgment that either man or Satan could make against him. Again, we stand confidently in the fact that God is faithful and how important that is to those who are called sinners and that would be all of us. And if some, as the Apostle John says, walks away from us so that it might be made manifest that they were never one of us, we can stand assured it does not impugn the character or nature of the God we serve. Now from here, the the apostle pivots to two objections, two additional objections. One found in verse 5 and the other in verse 7. Both can be articulated in one objection, an objection that Paul was attacking God's purity. We'll address this under our final heading, the reliability of God as judge. One theologian summed up the argument this way. If God is glorified by the sins of Israel, this is what they would have been saying with their little earthly self. If God is glorified by the sins of Israel being shown faithful himself, despite the unfaithfulness of his chosen people, then sin glorifies God. In other words, Paul, you are saying that what God strictly forbids actually brings him glory. 
You are saying that God is like a merchant who displays a piece of expensive gold jewelry on a piece of black velvet so the contrast makes the gold appear even more elegant and beautiful. You are charging God with using man's sin to bring glory to himself, and that is blasphemy. You are impugning the righteous purity of God. Not only that, but if man's unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say about God's judgment? If what you say, Paul, is true, why does God punish sin? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? Paul answers the first objection with an emphatic, again, it's emphatic, by no means. But before he does that, he made sure that everyone understood that he was recounting the fact that it was the foolish thinking of fallen men and not he himself. I speak in a human way, he says. That is, I'm speaking from the standpoint of a mind that is unregenerate, absent of God's illumination. If Paul was speaking in our vernacular today, he'd be saying, how in the world can God encourage or condone sin in order to glorify himself? That's the operative phrase here. Encourage or condone. Allow? Yes. But encourage or condone? Absolutely not. How could he do that? How in the world would he then be able to judge the world? You know, in my mind, uh, being around law enforcement in the past, uh, this would be like a police sergeant encouraging a young man on the street to sell opioids so that he could catch him and thus be promoted to lieutenant. How could he with a straight face arrest the young man, take him in, and then testify him, much less be his judge? He There's no such waywardness in God. It's complete poppycock and behalf of these guys. Again, these are the thoughts of people who are either unregenerate or seriously detached from the teachings of their faith. And notice it's, it's followed by even more lunacy. Why am I being condemned if my sin is bringing glory to God? Paul's accusers were, were claiming this was the, the way he was thinking and speaking. Paul was thinking and speaking this way, which prompted him to charge them with exactly what it was, slander, to which he simply and abruptly asserts their condemnation is just. You know, I heard Steve Lawson provide a good analogy of those who are unable to process the things of our faith. They take the things, the, the doctrines of our faith, and they, they don't even have the basic building blocks to understand what's being communicated in, in God's word. And so they, they, they ward it, they, they, they take away from it, they add to it, and they place their satanic human reasoning upon it. Lawson said about these folks, they're like two-year-olds handling a gun. They're just able enough to be dangerous. I remember once I was moved to do something I typically wouldn't, and that was to call into a radio station. The co-speakers on the show I called into were commenting on Calvinism and saying things like Calvinists don't believe in evangelism. All of them, none of them believe on the rapture and all sorts of central doctrines of the faith that came out of the Reformation and I remember, I figured I better call in. I said to myself, I figured I better call in, lest someone behind me 
called the fire department for you see, I was in my car at the time and, and smoke was coming out of my ears so much so that it was a chance the person behind me would have thought that my engine was fire, was on fire and called 911. These folks pervert the truth of God and wrongfully attack those who are sincerely employed in his service. So I need to close, so I digress, but let me end by saying this. There are many today who still assert that salvation by grace not only undermines God's law, but grants free license to sin. I'm personally well acquainted with this type of thinking. It produces what's known as legalism, man-made efforts to gain merit before God. Then there's the opposite spectrum. Those who claim as the Jews were accusing Paul of, of doing here that we should let sin abound so that grace, God's grace, may abound. I believe this text moves us away from both of those spectrums to a place where we need to be, to an understanding that our works our access to God's word and, and the other means of grace cannot save us, but they are sure benefit to us in every way. That our God is faithful, we should learn, and that all his promises are indeed yes and amen, and that God is truly just and would never call us to do anything that is contrary to his nature. We have a God who is a supremely, perfectly awesome God, who does not condone and encourage anything that is outside of his nature. But he calls us to follow him in Christ. So with those words, I say let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we heard again on last week that there is absolutely nothing we can do to earn our salvation. All the means of grace that you have provided for us, those things cannot save us. It is only through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and his atonement that we can be saved. That is where our hope is. But we've also heard this week that all those things that you have given us are of great benefit to us. None greater than we have the revealed knowledge of who you are and a call to magnify you, to draw near to you by the means of grace that you've provided to us. And so we thank you for illuminating our minds concerning both ends or sides of this particular coin and pray that you would continue to grow us in the image of our Lord and Savior through the very means that you've provided for us. Continue to sanctify us and use us as your witnesses in this lost and dying world. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.